All right, you can open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, we've started a series through the Minor Prophets, and um, we've covered the book of Jonah, we've covered the book of Amos, and this morning we find ourselves in the book of Hosea. Now, as I said, I, I grouped these three books together because they are preaching, or they have similarities, these three prophets. They all had something to do with the northern tribes. They preached towards the north. They preached in the same time period. And now, let me just mention, there are timelines, if you don't have the timeline, which kind of puts all of these books and prophets and kings and everything in order, which is a great help when you, when you study these things. Um, however, I see the timelines have run out. So, Next week, there will be more timelines, so sorry about that. If you do want a timeline, though, um, you can see me after the, church, after the service, and I can get that to you. All right, so we're in the book of Hosea, and Hosea preaches in a similar time as what Amos preached. Now, last time we looked at Amos and the climate of the nation of Israel, how they were prosperous, how they were doing well physically. The kingdom of Israel was unlike um, any of the recent times it's gone through, it was like in the days of David. And so they were really doing well. They, were, they, were, they had lots of land. They were um, just, can I say, blessed in that sense. But spiritually, they were absolutely poor. They were far from God. And they wanted nothing to do with God and the things of God. And I'm going to be looking into today. Now, before I started that, mentioned that when we did the book of Jonah, um, that week, that Thursday at Youth Bible Club, we covered the book of Jonah, and it wasn't planned at all. So it just randomly worked out that way that we did the book of Jonah, and then that Sunday I did um, the, um, the, the sermon on the book of Jonah. And this week it happened again. The lesson was Hosea, <laughs> and today we find ourselves in Hosea again. So for the Youth Bible Kids, I want to ask them, how many are here? There are a few, okay. So, who does Hosea represent? Yes. <laughs> he represents God, the husband. If, if, if Hosea represents the husband, who does Gomer represent? Yes wife, Israel, right? So, this is what, we, what we're going to read about. So, in the book of Hosea, who is called to marry someone who he knew would be unfaithful to him. God calls him and says, marry this woman, and she will be an adulterous woman. Now, that, first of all, to take that step and say, God, <laughs> I trust you, I obey you, I will do that. That is, that is some faith. But anyway, so just to break down quickly the book, chapters 1 to 3 speaks about Hosea's marriage. Uh, chapters 1 to 3 speak about Hosea's marriage. Oh, I should write something. Where's my koki? Uh. R, representation. Representation. I'm an engineer, I don't spell. Okay. <laughs> representation. So, those of you who are in school, if you don't like languages, go study engineering. But then you need to like maths at least. <laughs> All right. 
Representation. Now, what I mean by that is it's a representation of God's towards Israel uh, in the relationship of Hosea and Gomer. Chapters 4 to 10 is Hosea's sermon against Israel's adultery and God's punishment thereof. So, chapters 4 to 10. So, this is God's reprimand or God's rebuke. Representation, rebuke, and then chapters 11 to 14 speaks about Hosea's sermons, continuing his sermons about Israel's restoration. So we've got representation, rebuke, and restoration. And that is what, as he flows through the book, he's going to focus on. You'll see in chapters 1 to 3, he really gets into how, um, how bad Israel of wife is to God. And um, how actually we don't have to look much further than this book to see the application that there is to us as the bride of Christ, as church, God, Christ coming to get himself a bride. And so God's bride being Israel, the church being Christ's bride. Now, I think the best way to get a good overview of the book is to just read a few verses that I want to highlight, and then we'll get an idea of the, the context and everything that's going on in the book of Isaiah, because unfortunately, in the time allotted, I, we, there's no way we can go through the whole book. So this has been part of the struggle, is to decide what does God want us to hear this morning, because there is so much in this book. All right, so t- verse 1, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came to, unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this just gives us the period in which Hosea is preaching. He's preaching during Jeroboam, which was the same king to which Amos was preaching. That same period that this is taking place. And he preaches through over a period of a lot of kings, which means he prophesied for about 50 years. Now, if you read the book, you'll understand why that is quite significant. If all these sermons that he preached over a period of 50 years, considering the fact that Amos went before him, Elijah, Elisha went before that, all of these people have been preaching to Israel, and this is still the state of Israel. All right, then in chapters 1 verse 2, it says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said unto Hosea, Go, take thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Have a look quickly at chapters 3 verse 1. It says, chapter 3 verse 1 says, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman, beloved of a friend yet an adulteress according to the love of the Lord towards the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I brought her to me, for, uh, so I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an homer of barley and for half a homer of barley. So the picture is just, Gomer was unfaithful. To, uh, let's say, God told Hosea to marry Gomer. Then they're married, they have three children together. After they have these three children together, Gomer walks away. And she is adulterous. She lives in these, this, these relationships with men that she shouldn't be with. She men 
for her goodness, for the things that she has. She seeks, she praises not Hosea for the life that she has, she praises these men. She says, I will go to, my, to, to these friends of mine who give me my, my wine and all these things. And so her heart is completely on that side. And then in chapter 3, Hosea said to go and buy her back after that. He has to go buy her as a slave. In other words, she had gone so far down that train of sinful living, of adulterous life, that she has sold into slavery. And he had to go and buy her back, and he had to love her. And that is all a picture of who, um, how much God loves Israel. But at the same time, I want to point something out about this, and that is that from Hosea's perspective, I would would not see that situation as something God God would use, right? I find myself in a situation where my wife is not faithful to me. That is not something I'm considering as something that could glorify God, that could be a message to people. But Hosea saw that as a calling, and he saw that, those trials, those difficult things that he was going to, as preparation, or let me say amplification, to his message to the people. He could relate to what God was telling him to say in a way that no one else could. He had that sorrow, that pain, while he was speaking to the people who he knew where Gomer was. That moment, look at those people from God's perspective, and say, what are you doing? How are you living with that hurt? And so, just a practical thing is, the things that you are going through is something God will use for Him, for His good. If the struggles you are going through is something He's equipping you with to be able to help other people who go through those things. Because you can relate in a way that other people just can't. That as something of punishment, but it could be something that God is using in your life to prepare you for something greater. Let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 8 says, For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Look at verse 12. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. Point is just here, Gomer, or Israel, received all this blessing from God and attributed it all to her lovers and used those things to sacrifice at idols. The very things that God was giving them, they were using for sinful means. And I think the question we ask ourselves then, (laughs) what is God giving me? What is He entrusting me with? Your marriage, your finances, your children, your whatever. He has given that to you. What are you using that for? Who are you giving the glory for? Someone gives you a compliment about something you did, or who you are, or your child, or whatever. Where does it go? Does it go to, well, yeah, I'm actually not too bad. (laughs) Or does it go to praise God for His grace? 
right? Where, where does it go? Do you, are you your own idol to which you take those things and say, I deserve this. <laughs> I am going to take this stuff that I have and say it's because I did a good job. Or do you praise God for the very breath in your lungs, the, the ability to think, <laughs> the privileges you have? All of that is a gift of God. And so we point it to Him, and we don't do like Gomer and Israel, and we just give it, and we praise the, the sin around us. Um, in um, chapters 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a, hath a controversy, controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 6. Similar thought. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It speaks here about, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, about truth and mercy and knowledge. Now the truth is, to love that which is right, there was no love for that which is right in Israel. There was no love in Gomer for that which is right, which would be faithfulness to her husband. There was no mercy. In other words, there was no general kindness and forgiving to one another. The land of Israel, as you can see by the way they're living, they were just living for the pleasures. They were just living for, they were walking over people. We looked at that when we looked at Amos, how they just absolutely disregarded the poor and all of that. So there's, there was no mercy in these people. And these, this is the con controversy, what's the word? Controversy. Maybe I should have looked up this morning how to pronounce controversy. <laughs> controversy. Um, this is what God has a problem with. And then he says, and with knowledge. That means that there's no practical understanding of what God is, expects of them. There's no practical understanding. God says, here's my law, walk in it. What is your law? <laughs> they don't know. They weren't following it. They weren't living in it. There was no truth. There was no mercy. There was no knowledge. And this is coupled with an absolute disregard for God's word. Have a look at chapter 4, verse um, 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. So the lack of, the lack of knowledge, the lack of um, a truth, the lack of mercy is then followed by, by swearing, verse 2 of chapter 4, by swearing and lying and killing and communicated adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Um, they, they, they disregard a command that God has given. So I'm looking for uh, chapter 8, I can't remember, where it speaks about yeah, chapters 8, verse 12. Sorry, chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12 says, I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. God's law was counted as a strange thing. It was foreign to them. It was, this, what is this law? Why do we need to keep this law? It, it, it just wasn't part of the culture anymore. And so they had left truth, they had left mercy, they had left knowledge, and they were far from what God, where God wanted them to be. Last few things I want to point out is in chapter 5. Chapter 5. We're just going through these verses just to get a better idea of what's going on in the book. Chapter 5, verse 5 says, 
and the pride of and the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Israel's pride is the very thing that is accusing him. That is that's turned on him and put him down. The thing he thought I must do to lift myself up. The verse continues to say, therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. The very thing that they were doing to try and lift themselves up is the thing that made them fall. We read in Proverbs chapter 16 that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now that was written 200 years before this book was written. They had the Proverbs. They had these things. They knew better. They had the examples of all the judges. They had the examples of previous prophets. They had all these things. But they just lived the way they wanted to live. Now, in, um, well, let me ask you this. When it comes to pride, how far is your pride blinding you? How far is your pride, or how far has it maimed you? Remember, these people had heard the Bible, the truth of God being presented to them for 50 years by Hosea, but that is disregarding the whole history of the prophets and the judges and all of that. And they were just hearing it and hearing it. Now my question is, could it be that the pride has blinded you, that you don't even see that it is the pride that will cause you to fall? So a good way to measure, I think, spiritual pride is to say how much of what I am hearing from God's Word affects me. Because if you think that I am not in need of this, or I am okay that I don't need anything from this to change my life, that is pride. So, the question is, if you find yourself not really caring about what God maybe wants to tell you this morning, or what God wants to speak to you about, if you don't care, perhaps that is pride. And so my question is, how much has pride blinded or maimed you? Can you act on God's preaching? Are you still able to consider that God remembers your wickedness? Have a look at chapter two. Oh, chapter seven, sorry. Chapter seven speaks about this. Chapter seven and verse two. It says, And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. Can you still consider, do you consider the fact that your life is known to God? Everything. At, in some way, calibrate the way you think and the way you live. If you spend time in God's Word, His Word is like a mirror, it reflects. And so you read it and you see, oh, that, that, that applies to me. <laughs> I should do something about that. Now, are you like that man in James chapter 1 who sees the mirror, he looks in the mirror, he beholds himself and straightway forgets what All of that, that, that connects to pride. I don't need this instruction. Or you don't even open God's Word because I don't really have time for change. I'm busy. I'm doing the things the way I want to do it. I think that's very much the state Israel find, found itself in. Have a look quickly at chapter 11, verse 8. Chapter 11, verse 8. 
David says, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? And how shall I set thee as Zebulun? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Now, this is where God finds himself. He says, how can I give you up? How can I, how can I just hand you over? And he says, he refers to um, Adma and Zeboim. Now, those two places are cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, he says, how can I just give you up? I love you so much. Remember Gomer, I love you so much. How can I just give you over? How can I treat you like I treated Sodom and Gomorrah? And then he says, my heart is turned within me. My repentings, that is his compassions, are kindled together. I was stirred up. And this is God's heart. He goes through all of this rebuke. He goes through all of these things and how he's got a problem. And he gives them a prophet who needs to marry a prostitute and live with that prostitute. And the children that need to suffer under that to just try and show Israel how much he loves them. How much he desires them to have fellowship with him. And that's why he says, my heart is turned within me. And so I want you not to lose sight of that, because the more I study these minor prophets, the more I realize it's, it's doom and gloom <laughs> for a large part of it. And that's, it's because of where Israel was and how much God loved them. This morning, Francois said, sometimes going to that brother or sister in love means you need to say something that's not easy to say is to point something out that's wrong. Because you want what's best for them. You want fellowship. You want them to be near to God. But you know that the sin that they are living in is keeping them from God. And so it's that love, that, and that's why I called it loving faithfulness. Now, like you get loving kindness. This does not exist, but it exists today. <laughs> loving faithfulness. It is God who faithfully loves. As Gomer was faithfully loved by Hosea. Faithful love. And as you read in chapter 14 of Hosea, God one day will restore. There is restoration, but this restoration is far from the difficulty, or that, and I mean far, it's in the future. There's a lot of trouble that these people had to go through. Now, I ask the question, how does this apply to us? three ways. How does this apply to us? Well, first of all, let me just point out a few things. Jesus and Paul thought that Hosea applied to us. They're both quoted. Um, by, it's quoted by Jesus and it's quoted by Paul. Chapter 6, verse 6 of Hosea is quoted by Jesus in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. So Hosea 6, verse 6 says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And this is what Jesus tells the Pharisees. The Pharisees do all these things. They go to the temple. They pray in the... They sit in the front of the temple. They pray everywhere in the street. People can see them. People see their spirituality. But Jesus then uses this verse from Isaiah to say that I desired your mercy and not sacrifice. And I desired knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now that knowledge is not a knowledge of God, as in the sense of there is a God. The Pharisees acknowledge that. It is to say, I, if I tell you I know my wife, 
you think something else than if I say, I know Nelson Mandela or whatever. It's completely two different no. And so the knowing here is that intimate, that, that close, that, that marriage relas relationship kind of love. And so Jesus quoted Hosea. He thought it was relevant. And Paul also quoted Hosea in, chapter, in Romans chapter 9, verse 25. He quotes Hosea chapter 2. And he quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, which speaks about the Gentiles being included in this future um, bride of Christ this bride of God, and how the Gentiles would be included in that. So he quotes, Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 9. Um, he quotes Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. But also, I think it's a very, this idea of, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 11, but this idea of um, the bride, we being Christ's bride, and um, Israel being God's bride, is carried through nicely into the New Testament. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and while you turn there, I'm sure you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, where God tells the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, right? And gave himself for it, that he may present to himself a bride that is without blemish and all of that. So that is definitely consistent. So, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 3, we read, For I am jealous, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, that one husband being Christ. But I fear, lest by any means the serpent, um, as the serpent beguiled Eve through the subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So Paul says, guys, I, I want you to be married, I want you to be faithful to Christ, not be deceived by the subtlety of the servant to follow that and follow that, follow Christ. That is that, that would also be likened to adultery. This following after this and following after that and not staying true to what God wants us to follow. As Francois also, also mentioned today, that unity, that, that following of, of, or that unity in the body of Christ comes from the truth of God. Uniting around the truth of God. Uniting it around what Jesus has said. Not around what that person and that person, that person. Let's get back to the God of the Bible. So this applies to us. This definitely applies to us. And this is why I want to preach about loving faithfulness. Now, something I was hoping to get to, but we're not going to have time for that. And that is that do a study of the book of Hosea, where you look at the character of God. His character. Because I was thinking of titling the sermon, um, God's saving character. In other words, the character, who He is, leads him to have to save. He's holy, he's just. He promises certain things. He's faithful to his word. He's the giver of good things. He's, he's a redeemer. He's faithful. He's compassionate. He's loving. He offers repentance and he's savior. And he's the only savior. And actually, you read that in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 4, how that he is the only savior. Now, I just find that incredibly interesting because if you take those list of characteristics through, you see, but God is good. But God is also jealous. But, and God is holy. And God is just. And so it leads us into understanding our guilt. It leads us to understanding who God is and who we are when we reflect ourselves against His goodness. And then it goes on to say, but God is also compassionate. And God is also love. 
and he also offers repentance, and he wants people to repent. And so his character leads him to the point where he then says in, in Hosea chapter 13, verse 4, he is the Savior. He's the only one who can save. And so I just find that a beautiful picture that Hosea builds through as he goes. So the first thing I want to point out is his loving faithfulness to the world. His loving faithfulness to the world. Now what I mean by the world, I mean if you are here today and you're not saved, you are lost, you do not know Christ personally as your Savior, you fall in that category of the world. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks about this, this alienation, if I can put it that way, of the Gentiles. So in Ephesians chapter 2, I'll read it to you, verse 12, it says, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye also, which were afar off, the Gentiles, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We see that in Hosea as he prophesies about the Gentiles coming. So he's speaking to a crowd that is not part of this. And he says, you will be a part of this group. You will come in. So there's a loving, there's a love, a loving faithfulness to the world. God shows his love to the world by sending Jesus. That's how he shows his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is how he shows his love. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, For God commendeth his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Everything about God's love to the world circles around the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You cannot have God's love if you are lost outside of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the general kind of provision of God that brings the rain on the just and the unjust. I'm talking about love, talking about intimate relationship, fellowship, knowing God. You cannot have that without Jesus Christ. We were the enemies of God, but we were reconciled to Him. So God shows His faithfulness by sending Jesus. But I think God shows His faithfulness to the world by establishing the church, by you. That is how God wants to show His loving faithfulness to the world. The church is set up and that needs to partake in the Great Commission. We are to teach all nations. In Acts chapter 1 it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So there's that aspect of the loving faithfulness of God is taken to the world through the church, through the Great Commission. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. As we have been reconciled through Christ to God, we need to now be the people who reconcile the world to God. We are those ambassadors of Christ. How else does the world know Christ? Christ is not physically here on earth. It's through the church. How do they... And unfortunately, the distorted view that some people have of who Christ is and who God is is because of the negligence and the lax attitude towards being an ambassador for Him. And so God wants to use us. So you, me, we need to take that call seriously. Not just in evangelizing, to use the term loosely, but in the way you live. 
what do people, if people had to look at your life, would they see Jesus, characteristics of Jesus? Would they get an idea of the loving faithfulness that God has? And that is the challenge, and that is why God put the church here, is to let the Spirit work through the people. Let the Spirit rebuke the, wor- the world of sin and righteousness and, and judgment to come. And we see that in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, not that all should come to repentance. God does not want anyone to die without Jesus. And so He wants to show His loving faithfulness through Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I quoted John chapter 3, verse 16 to you, for God so loved the world. But later on in that chapter, John chapter 3, verse 36, that says, Whosoever believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But whosoever believeth not, the wrath of God abideth on him. And so that is why we need to go out. We need to tell people about our Savior. Because as Hosea says in Hosea 13, verse 4, it says, Yet I am the Lord, thy God, from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. There is no Savior beside me. So, what is your response to His loving faithfulness? If you're lost, do you want to be saved? He is faithful in love to save, but He is also faithful in holiness to judge. God remains faithful. <laughs> he is faithful to save, to offer Christ, to make a plan, to show that there is time for repentance. He's faithful, but He's also faithful that He will judge. And so there we need to ask ourselves, where do we stand in response to God's loving faithfulness? Second thing is God's loving faithfulness to His bride. His loving faithfulness to His bride. Now, if you're saved, you're His bride. Amen. You're His bride. So have a, let's have a look quickly here um, in Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. Now, earlier I read to you from Hosea chapter 2 and how Gomer and Israel was giving glory to the idols, giving glory to their, their allies like Egypt and Assyria for the things that they had and not giving glory to God. But have a look at God's response in um, chapter 2. He says, therefore, now, he's just spoken about the sin that they've been committing and how they've been serving other idols. Now God responds and he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak comfortably to her. Do yourself a favor and read that in the context of what preceded. And it is incredible that therefore sounds like it should be, therefore I will destroy her. (laughs) When you read that therefore, you kind of assume what's coming next, and then it's completely not what you expect. It says, therefore I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak comfortably to her. That is mercy. And that is the mercy Yes, that he does show to the world. 
And that is the mercy that he shows to his bride specifically here. In other words, when you, when you wander and you've been distracted by the world, God says, you deserve X, but I will allure you. I will draw you. I want you to come back. And this is vividly displayed in the book of um, Hosea, especially through the analogy or the, 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 the picture of Gomer. Let me read um, to you in, in, in chapter 3. We read it earlier, but just think of this as God reaching out to you. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman, beloved of a friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord towards the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So, and then it says, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver. So here she is, a slave, left you, trade, traded you for someone else, and you go and you buy her. And that is the love of Jesus. This is a great illustration of the gospel, I think, because here you have this person who is, it's almost like God, if you think of Hosea as a picture of Christ, God sending Hosea, and he says, go to these people. Jesus goes to these people. And then he says, go buy them. Go buy a bride. Go get this bride and bring them. And then in verse 3, it goes on to say, then what is, what needs to happen from that? What needs to come from that relationship? But I find it interesting that it's mentioned in the context of the previously bought bride. So the bride is already saved, if you can use that analogy. She's already the bride of Hosea. She's not being bought back. Now, I find that very important because if you're saved, it means the gospel, the fact that you have been bought, the fact that the prophet has been sent, is still important to your daily life today. The gospel is not something that happened to you that you understood somewhere in the past, and that is now something of the past, and now I live in something else. You live in the fact that you have been saved. You live in the fact that, and it's that daily thing of knowing that you, you have been saved, you have been redeemed, you, you have been restored to God. Now, I think the question, and this is what I've been asking myself, is when last did you meditate on, on the gospel? Not, not to understand the gospel, to preach it to someone else. When last did you under, meditate the, on the gospel towards yourself? Have you been saved? Do you know the gospel? When last did you think about where you've been saved from and where you would be without Christ today? Now, that doesn't mean you have to live in the past, but it sure does do something to your soul. To, in your mind's eye, look back and say, if it was not for Christ... What would my life be like today? Where would I be today? Where was I when I was saved? And how much has changed since I've been saved? Have you looked back at that? Is the gospel still relevant to you even though you have already been made part of that covenant, if I can put it that way? The, Christ, uh, the price Christ paid for you. The magnitude of that sacrifice. I want to encourage you to take some time today, tonight, to really 
think about this. If you're safe, to take time and think about what God has done for you. How much He means to you. Because if you, if you find that in that meditation that your life is not much different, or it wouldn't have been much different, then I would want you to ask the next question, well, did Christ truly come and save me? Did, he, did my life truly change? If there's been no significant change, then ask the question. Or if you just don't find the time to do it, I almost want to refer you back to point one. Maybe you're not yet in the bride. Take time. Think about the gospel. What it means. What it means to you personally. Where you would have been without it. You see, the thought of, if the thought of God's loving faithfulness does not, if it does not stir your heart, or if it gives you the impression of something cheap, or if it gives you the impression of something just another set of things that I believe. If that's all that it <laughs> invokes in you, I think it would be fair to say you need to reconsider whether you truly know Christ. The gospel may be simple, but that doesn't mean it's cheap. And I think a lot of people confuse those two things. There's simplicity in Christ. It's, this is, the gospel is simple to understand. It doesn't make it cheap. It doesn't make it something that is not valuable and you should cherish and hold on to with all you have. It is special. It is of great value. And it should invoke in you a desire to reciprocate. Now, that, what I mean by that is, if God shows loving faithfulness to you, shouldn't that, in this marriage relationship, imagine if your wife, in this case, or your husband, in this case, shows loving faithfulness to you consistently, and just loves and loves and loves, and there's no desire to reciprocate. That is, well, first of all, that's not a marriage that's not going to last, but that is just an awful situation to find yourself in. And so we need to check ourselves. Is where do we put ourselves? Where do we reciprocate to what God um, has done for us and what He shows to us? It is His desire as it is Christ's desire to be in, fellow, uh, um, in fellowship with us, to know his, ch his church, His bride. It was Hosea's desire for Gomer, and it is God's desire for Israel. And so where do you, what can I say, what is the quality of your marriage with God? And then lastly, what I want to say, I actually don't know what to write here, that's why I put a question mark. Because what does God want from this bride. I don't want to write bride again, so it's a question. This is what God shows to the world. This is what God shows to His bride. Now, what does God expect from His bride? Okay? What, if we are saved, what does He want from us? What does He want from us? Now, what did God want from Israel? Have a look at Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. What did God want from Israel? He wanted faithful fellowship, if I can put it that way. Faithful fellowship. Chapter 2 and verse 16 says, And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, 
that thou shalt call me Ishi, and that um, and shalt call me no more Bali. Now Ishi means husband, but it's kind of like your little what is it in English? Trutul um, nom, pet name. That, that sounds wrong. <laughs> Special word for your wife, <laughs> like you know, lovey, honey, just a. A, a, a bit more of an intimate way. You shall call me Ishi and no more Bali, which is master, <laughs> or ironically, Francois Lord. Um, so <laughs> but I guess you could use Lord in a, in a, in a, in, in a, in a cute way, I guess. <laughs> but um, I wonder what my wife's going to say about that. Anyway. Okay, so the point is, sorry, fellowship. It's intimate. It's not this master-servant tight relationship. There's fellowship. Have a look at verse 19 of chapter 2. It says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. There's that word know again. That's that intimate, that close knowledge. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 3. It says, and I, shall, and I said unto her, Thou shalt be, abide me many days. Abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I be for thee. Do you see that there is a desire for faithful fellowship? It's faithful because it's consistent. It's, it continues throughout your life. But it's fellowship. It's not, it's not just this, this thing that you do that's not intimate, that is not personal. There needs to be faithful fellowship, and that is what God wants. And secondly, what God also wants from His bride is faithful fellowship, and secondly is faithful worship. Faithful worship. Chapter 4, verse 1. We spoke about this earlier. Truth, mercy, knowledge. And then in chapter 6, verse 6, which um, Jesus quotes, is that I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. That is that faithful worship. That is where God does not want to be worshipped in a way that you think is good. <laughs> he wants to be worshipped in the way that is right, that is true, that is according to knowledge. Think about, once again, marriage relationship. If I do something for my wife that I think is nice, but it's a terrible idea, like she's maybe allergic to chocolate, which she isn't, but Definitely not, definitely not allergic to chocolate. But imagine she was allergic to chocolate. And I bring her chocolate. Now, I may think of it such a cute idea, and I'm going to put all these things together, but it, it, what does it mean? It means nothing to her, right? Maybe that's a nice idea, but you should know better. <laughs> and that's, I almost feel like sometimes we bring something to God, and... Um, it's, you should know better. Remember, they, they treated God's law as some strange thing. They didn't know it. It was foreign to them. Now, you should know your wife or your husband in such a way that when you try and do something special, it is actually something that they do enjoy. And so with, when it comes to God, when it comes to faithful worship, He wants worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
in spirit. In other words, there's passion behind it. There is a good heart behind it. I want to do this. But in truth, the way it needs to be done. And so God wants that from His bride. He wants faithful fellowship. So there's fellowship and there's worship. Now, how are you doing in that? How are you, what, if you could rate yourself from zero to ten as a bride to Christ, how would you rate yourself? Just ask yourself, think about it. Would you want to be married to yourself the way you are towards God? Strange idea, but it's true. Would you want to be married to someone like you the way you treat your relationship with God? And I think if there's anything we take from here today, it's that. Am I the bride that God expects from me? And then, how are we doing as a church? How are we living up to what God wants? Now, the church, I think, the church, in other words, everyone who gathers on a Sunday, I don't think is doing a really good job. But how are we doing as a local church? Together, are we trying to be the bride that Christ wants, that He wants to present to His Father at that day? That is what we should endeavor to be. I want to close off with what Hosea closes off. He closes off in chapter 14 with this verse. Verse 9. Hosea 14 and verse 9. He says, Who is wise and he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just walk therein. But, then it goes on to say, but the transgressors shall fall therein. So, you, do you consider yourself to be wise and prudent? Do you want to be wise and prudent? Do you want to serve God in that way, well then acknowledge that the ways of the Lord is right and the just shall walk in them. If you're saved, if you've been justified, walk in the ways that God has given. That would make you wise, that would make you prudent, but the transgressor shall fall therein. He shall keep stumbling. He will keep doubting his salvation. He will never have sure footing in this world because he doesn't acknowledge God's truth, his mercy, and the knowledge of God, something high and something to be sought after. And that will mean you'll stumble through this life. You'll fall in these, these um, your transgressions will make you fall and it will make you fall and it will repeat. And so that is not the type of life that we want in our marriage. It is not the type of life we want as a church. It is not the type of life that anyone wants. It's this life where you're consistently falling and failing and falling and failing. And that is what you have if you disregard God's call for you to repent. Disregard His loving faithfulness. Disregard all of that. It means it'll be a life of, it'll be a useless Christianity. And that is not where we want to be. We want to be near to the heart of God. We want to be that bride for Him. So, as we close, I want to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to think about this question. How are you doing as His bride? 
would, would you want to be married to, to God? Or would God want to be married to you, rather? I want to give you some time to just think on that and ask yourself, how are you doing as Christ's bride? Think back to the day where he saved you. And how has your relationship grown with him? Could I say, are you are you happily married? The advantage we have is that we know God's heart and that it is, it's turned within him and that his compassions are stirred up for us and he wants to be close to us. So we know that if we turn to him, he is not far. He is close and he wants to restore that. He's even willing to pay for it. If you're not saved today, God showed his love to you and he wants to build that, that relationship where you, with you where you can walk with him and he can guide you and you can have a stable footing in this life and know why you're here and have purpose and, and hope of a future and that this life is not all there is and that is all made possible through Christ who paid so much for his bride, a great sacrifice. I pray that if you're not certain that you will, you will come speak to someone today, find me, but that you won't go out of here today not having been united with God, that you don't stay in a state where you're an enemy of God and you have no hope in this world. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we could spend this time together, Lord. I, it's, been, um, it's been a difficult one for me to, to work through, Lord. Um, but I, I thank you for your word and that your word remains faithful, Lord, that you're good. And um, Lord, I thank you for your, your loving faithfulness, Lord. It's always love, it's always true, but it's, it remains faithful. I thank you for saving us, and I thank you for wanting to walk with us and make us more like Christ and um, work in our lives, Lord, that you, that you don't give up. Um, you don't give up on, on your bride and that you, you don't give up on those who are not yet part of it, Lord. I thank you so much for this, this picture of, of your love and... Um, Thank you, Lord, just for, for, for giving us this, 
this time in this book, Lord, that we can study. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in these people's hearts if they, as they think on these things, as they meditate on, on your so great salvation and the price that you paid and the love that you displayed in Hosea to Gomer, Lord, that it would stir our hearts, that we would want to be more like you and grow closer to you. I thank you so much for this, and I ask that you please be with us in the rest of this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.